Guys, we can continue this week in a series that we're kind of in the midst of on discipleship and what it means to follow after Jesus Christ together and for us to kind of come to understand and embrace what that is. This week is week three and we're aiming to, uh, to finish after week eight. It won't necessarily be in five more weeks because in the midst of that we have a couple of things such as uh, communion next week and but nonetheless, we'll continue until this eight-week series is, is finalized. We really want to understand Jesus's, his, his uh, strategy for reaching people. You know, what did it look like and how did he reach into the lives of the people around him? And so what we want to do is take a look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and unpack uh, this passage. And... and what we said kind of over and over again is what we don't want to do is pick eight nice principles, throw them out there, and say these are the principles, right? What we want to do is go to the passages where Jesus was showing us his heart and then learn from his heart in the midst of the, the text. So that's our goal, what we want to do. We're doing our best at that. And so Mark chapter 3, we're going to start reading at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. He came up on the mountain and called to him, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts. Teach us this morning. We need you. We do not want to have a method of discipleship in this church that is some kind of new fad. It's the new thing we've talked about for 10 years or 15 years in the American culture. We want to go straight back to the Word and learn from your son. And so we ask that you would uh, teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, Jesus wants to multiply his followers. He does not want to do like some simple addition where we get large groups of people together. He wants to multiply his disciples. And so what is the way in which he's going to do that? what we're looking at in this passage. What is his tactics? 
How does he stay focused on uh, his own strategy to build disciples? And we're going to take a look at the, the verses 7 uh, down uh, through verse 12. And those verses teach us here today that Jesus' plan to multiply his disciples, including overcoming challenges together. You know, he, he's calling these guys to come with him. He's calling them to learn from him. We're going to look at that call in just a minute, but there's, there's challenges immediately. So if you look back at verse uh, Mark chapter 1 and 2, Jesus has had some, some involvement with and some kind of altercations, if you will, with some, some guys who are coming to really challenge him and make his life miserable. The Pharisees had a bazillion rules that they wanted Jesus and everybody to keep. And so Jesus, on the Sabbath day, had been healing some people, and the Pharisees got up in Jesus' face and said, what's the deal with you? You shouldn't be doing this work on a Sabbath. And Jesus had just said to him, said to them, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He was like rising up in terms of how much authority he was claiming before them. And so the Pharisees, who were all about Judaism, they're all about being Jewish, connected with these Herodians who were all about the, the Roman rule in the land. They never talked to each other, they hated each other, but they came together to conspire against Jesus. So if you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 6, right before we jump in here, you see that they were making plans against Jesus. So Jesus was withdrawing from them. So again, look at verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. I think we could spend the whole time on just that phrase. He withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Guys, there's, there's tensions here, there's trouble, and rather than continue to engage that, how about the 12 of us, let's just go apart Go to the calm place. I love to park along Lake Michigan where the water is and there's sunrises. My favorite time of day in the summer is like 7.30 at night when the sun is shining out onto the water and it's like everything else is dark, but the water just glows. It's just beautiful as it brightens up. Nikki and I live like half a block away from the lake, so we get to see it this morning. I woke up and, and got to look out my window upstairs and watch the sun rising. And from my bed, obviously, all of us get to see and, and be, you know, woken by the sunrise. But I get to walk three steps and see, see the water. It's, it's an amazing privilege. Jesus is calling his disciples with him to go to the water, to go to the, the sea. Problem number one is the crowds. He is seeing the crowds that are beginning to be, like, like frothed up. They're beginning to get charged up. He's been healing their sick people for a long time. So here's a couple of problems with the crowd. Number one, the timing. It is not time for Jesus to fully make himself known yet and step into letting everybody know exactly who he is. He's beginning to show himself to his disciples. His plan is not show myself to everybody and let the word get out. His plan is show myself to a few people deeply and teach them to teach of me to others. And Jesus is not going to be knocked off that plan. So the timing is not right for him to make himself known to these crowds just too early in his ministry. The second problem that he has with the the, uh, crowds is the makeup of the crowd. 
You know, he's going to prove himself to the people of Israel first. But if you look at this crowd, the crowd, it's made up of people from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And now he starts naming regions, uh, Mark does, even further out. So from Idumea, that's in the south, way, way south. And so that's going to be some people outside of Jerusalem. It's too early for him to allow himself to be, to be known by those folks. Beyond the Jordan, if you can picture the promised land in your head, this is obviously on the east side of the Jordan River, way out there. It's too early to be letting him known, himself known out there. There's not only Jews, but there's Jews and Greeks. And again, the timing is not right. Tyre and Sidon, that's to the north, right? And so it's just the, the timing, the crowd, the makeup of the crowd. Listen, it's starting to spread beyond the Jewish world, and Jesus is not just ready for that yet, okay? So he, he calls them in rather than presses into this opportunity. You and I see the crowd almost always in the United States of America in 2015 as an opportunity. The crowd is a good thing. If we can't have a crowd with Jesus as his identity, in his identity, let's find other ways to get a crowd. Let's promise trinkets. Let's, let's bring them together. Let's get better music. Let's get better technology. Let's get the crowd together, right? That's not what Jesus is all about. Jesus is not all about getting a crowd together and adding to his numbers by the, by the crowd that can come. If that were his plan, we would have to do that same plan in every generation. We could be led by just a few people, and it would just be a couple personalities, and it could be a celebrity mindset. Jesus is like, look, that is not the way we're going to build. That's not the way we're going to do this thing. And in the midst of the crowds gathering, he's calling to his 12 and saying, let's move away from the crowds. More often than not, when the crowds start to gather, Jesus makes himself scarce. Because when people start coming to Jesus for what he gives them rather than for who he is, he, he withdraws from them. He's saying, disciples, I want you to come to me for who I am. That is the, the only Messiah of God. Come for my identity. You, you probably know this, but Jesus did the healings because he had compassion and love. But here's a little reminder that those healings were not meant to, to uh, be the only reason people would follow a hundred percent of the Jesus, of the people that Jesus healed are dead today. Right? Now, some of them may have came to, come to faith and are still living in heaven today, but the point being is these were temporary acts of power for a little time because they were going to die eventually. But he was showing his power not just to give them 10 more years in this world, not to give them 15 years of peace or calm, not to give them just a temporary blessing. Jesus is far bigger than that. He was doing those acts and healing the people so that they would believe that he is the only Messiah of God. That's far bigger. And he was saying to his disciples, guys, guys, let's come away from these crowds that are coming to me for my stuff, that are coming to me for what I can give them, that are coming to me for peace. Listen, why are you coming to Jesus? Maybe it started because he did offer some peace or some comfort, or some help, or some big thing that in this world ministered to your name. There's nothing wrong with us ministering kindnesses and graces. We should be all about that in the church. 
But the big deal is not that we can be kind to one another. It's that Jesus can forgive the sins of everybody on, who trusts him, everybody who follows him. And so we have to quickly get to the point where we're following him, not for what he gives us, but for who he is. This week, as I was thinking about this concept, I was just jotting myself notes and asking myself things like this. Why do I follow Jesus right now? seems to me that the longer I follow Jesus, the more I settle in to this sort of like a, a default position of a prayer list that includes stuff that Jesus could be doing or should be doing for me. And it sure seems to me in my memory that in my first days of following Jesus, my prayer list was full of thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are and for what you've done already. Why, why are you following Jesus? Are you increasingly frustrated that he's not doing enough for you? Listen, it may be time to go back to being with Jesus and remembering that you started following him not for what he did. Hopefully you started following not for the stuff he could provide for you, not for the easy life he might offer you. He doesn't offer anyone an easy life, right? He, he offers himself to us, and himself is this only king who can forgive. And so the, make of the, the challenge number one is the crowds coming for stuff, coming for healings, and Jesus calling his disciples and saying, guys, we, let, let's back off of this. Remember that the proclamation of the kingdom is not about stuff. It's not about ease. It's not about comforts. It's about Jesus forgiving sin. It's about him ruling over the earth. It's about him present forever because this world belongs to him. And there's a danger in this crowd as well. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, guys, let's, uh, boy, we ought to get a boat together. I mean, I'm literally going to get down to the, to the shoreline. And these huge crowds, these crowds were huge. In fact, so much so that another part of this whole thing was that they were not only motivated for the stuff that Jesus could give to them, but they got ruckus and they're huge and they're pressing in. They also got to be such a big crowd that the, the uh, Pharisees and especially the Herodians, the guys who were uh, loyal to Herod, were saying, man, this crowd is too big. They, if he says the wrong thing, Jesus says the wrong thing and gets this crowd fired up, we could have a revolution on our hands. We could have a, a, a countercultural movement where they take up arms and start to overthrow. And Jesus withdrew from that. That's not what he was about. He was not about frothing up the crowd and having revolution like that. He was the revolution. He was the one who would turn the, the whole world up on, uh, upside down. Not by show of force. And so there's this danger as this crowd presses in and he says, guys, get the boat. The boat almost always represents Christian fellowship. Because when you're in a boat, you don't go anywhere. Have you ever sat in a boat for a long time? Listen, I'm not a fisherman and I can go fishing with the right, you know, usually it's my father-in-law. I love going fishing with him because I love spending time with him. But I hate, I hate catching fish. I do not want, I pray that I don't catch any fish while I'm in the boat. There's something out there. That's what men do. You throw it out. You know, you have to do it. You have to go through the motions. But I'm like, oh, I don't want to catch any fish. I'm just going to sit here and talk to... Because listen, you're in the boat. There's nothing else to do. You're talking. You're connecting. And so Jesus says, get the boat ready. Because here's the whole crowds, and I'm calling you guys to be with me. Let's launch out and be safe, and I'm going to teach the crowds what's going on. So the boat is a representative of what Jesus wants to do with his disciples. 
Challenge number two is the unclean spirits. You see that? Verses 11 and 12, the unclean spirits come and they start to make Jesus known. They start saying, oh, listen, here he is. He's the son of, of God. And again, the timing's wrong. And so he commands that the unclean spirit, isn't this good? Again, modern United States of America, huge crowds together, a powerful force is identifying Jesus as the son of God. Sometimes this is our goal. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm, no, this is not what I'm about. I'm going to silence those voices. Now, again, these uh, unclean spirits, they're not identifying him for the purpose of commitment. They don't want to follow Jesus. We find out later in James chapter 2, verse 19, that they're identifying Jesus out of fear. They're afraid of him. So it's the, the, even demons, they believe that, that God is one, but they tremble at that. They are physically moved in their heart. Are you physically moved to fear Jesus? The demons were. These, these unclean spirits are not identifying him for the purpose of commitment, but, but out of fear and out of opposition to him. And so Jesus silences them, and he teaches his disciples. This is what it looks like. Guys, you're with me. You see me start to be identified. Call, shut them down. We don't wanna, we're not going to receive praise from these unclean spirits. The timing is wrong. We're just, we're not going to be about that here in this place. And so Jesus is multiplying disciples by doing this, overcoming these challenges together. But secondly, we move on and we see that he's got some plans to do some on-the-job training. He's going to train them while they go. Verse 13, Uh, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Again, I, I really wish we could just stop and the rest of all of the sermon could be on this phrase. Um, he called those whom he desired. Guys, I sometimes have a hard time believing that. That he desires me. I have a hard time receiving that Jesus would, would come up in my grill and get face-to-face with me and look me in the eye. And he would say, listen, I know all your past. I know all your failings. I know all your tendencies. I know all your personality weirdnesses. I know how bizarre you are. Let me tell you something else. I don't need you to build my kingdom. Because he didn't say, I need you. Jesus doesn't need me. If, if I fall dead here right this minute, it would be awkward for all of you. <laughs> but it'd be okay. Because he doesn't need me to, to build his church. He doesn't need you to build his church. I need, I need to get a little less self-important. This isn't about me. This isn't about Gary. This isn't about elders. This, isn't about, this is about Jesus. What God is doing in this place is about Jesus and the person of Jesus. And he doesn't need any of us to do it. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your giftedness. He doesn't need anything that you have to build this kingdom. But he wants it. Oh, he wants you. I hope that you feel like weak in the knees, 
humbled by the fact that Jesus, if he were to hear today and you've heard his call on your life, he would look you in the eyes and he would say, listen, I desire you. I want you. I don't need you, but I want you. Listen, we want to give our money. We want to give our time. We want to give our talents because we love Jesus so much. And so the motivation to give all those things has nothing to do with this church falls apart if one of us doesn't do our part. It has to do with Jesus is the head of this church, and he's called us because he, des- he desires to be with you. He wants you to be with him. And that is profound. Because as he starts this on-the-job training, that's the, the picture he, he, may, he gives us is that he wants to be with he wants us to be with him. Come and be with me. Come and learn of my ways. Come and hear me. He just saw the crowd. We're not going to be a crowd-based ministry. We're not going to be a receive praise from the, from the unclean spirits kind of thing. But in our on-the-job training, we are going to see Jesus calling us to spend time and be alongside of him and with him. And so he wants us to remain with him. He wants to gather us with him in his presence. So we remain with Jesus. The essence of Jesus' training program is not a bunch of information. We do have to know the information. We've got to know the curriculum, don't we? I mean, he claims in this passage again and points back to Mark 2 of Son of Man. He wants them to know that he is the fulfillment. He is the one and only Messiah. He's the only promised one of God. He wants them to know the Old Testament, you know, uh, sacrificial system. It all pointed, you know, spill blood and, and, and cover sin points to Jesus. He, he wants us to know all of those things. And so it's good and it's right to know the information. We've got to know the information. We've got to know that the New Testament points to Jesus and him alone. We've got to be able to interact with people of why Jesus is the unique and only Son of God. Acts 4.12, that there's one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. We've got to understand all that stuff. But the essence of Jesus' discipleship system is withness. Let me put that another way. The curriculum of discipleship is being with Jesus. Jesus is the plan, being with him. And so we know more information about Jesus' the last three years of his life than we know about all the rest of his life put together and far beyond. I mean, just tons we know in these last three years. And the further we get in the three years, the more we know. And you know what we see of him? That he spends a ton of time with his disciples. If you added up how much time he spent with his disciples, the 12, it it, uh, it equals more than all of the time with everyone else combined. He spent a ton of time gathering his disciples together and doing things like we're reading about right here. There's some tension here. Listen, guys, let's go on a walk. We, we, there's trips that he executed in the New Testament that are apparently trips to nowhere just so that he can walk with his disciples. Just so he can be with them, so he can teach them, so he can be in a region where the crowds aren't following him anymore, and he can press into them. You know, we talk so much about Jesus hung out with, you know, the sinners, and he, he did have relationship with sinners. He didn't, he, he, he had the most conflict in terms of what people, you know, threw insults at him because he didn't refuse to hang out with sinners. 
not because he spent so much time with them. And so one of the ways that Jesus is going to uh, uh, really equip us is he is going to spend time with us. And that brings us to this question, how? How does Jesus spend time with me today? What does that look like? Well, first things first, we see Jesus leaving the disciples occasionally, regularly, to go out and be alone with God. There's one-on-one time that you and I need to be spending with God. With our Bibles open and our hearts connected to him in prayer and asking us, God, reveal to me what's, what you want me to know today. Show me. Teach me. Train me. That's, that's the other thing. Is In coming to Jesus and gathering to Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, anything in my life that you want to cut, that you want to buff, that you want to trim. He was regularly saying, Peter, no, no, that's not right. Don't do it that way. John, I mean, you're on the right track, but here's some things you need to keep in mind. And so Jesus was constantly coaching his disciples. And and withness looks like, in this church, it looks like us being on task in in the midst of a, a service or a ministry together. It doesn't necessarily mean a formal Awana ministry, but it may mean that you with your neighbor are praying for your neighborhood. You're praying that you can reach out to this neighbor and that neighbor with the gospel. We have Easter coming up, and in years past, we have put together these invitations for everyone to give out to their whole neighborhood. And last year, the year before, we said, okay, let's, let's go out and put these in all of our neighbors' doors and really make this known. And this passage in studying for this this week has made me um, totally rethink that. And this year, you know what I'd like to do? We're going to print invitations to Easter. going to have an open spot on it where you can write your name and you can write your cell number and you can write who you're, who you're all about. And I hope that nobody takes more than two. And you say, listen, friend, would you come to my church with me on Easter Sunday? I've got a right side and a left side. And I'm inviting my friends to come with me to examine who Jesus is. And I'm praying that the Lord, even right now, in me saying that to you, that a light's going on in your heart, and you're saying, if I were going to invite one friend to come, not to come randomly to a first service when I'm going to be at third service, uh, but to come and sit in the service with me to hear the preaching so I can interact and connect and answer questions and just be their friend. And many of us will say, well, right afterwards, I've got I to gotta go to a family thing. Great, they've got to go too. They don't want to go out and spend hours. They, but, but they may come on Easter Sunday with you to examine who this Jesus is. And so we'll, we'll watch for that to come because those uh, invitations will be available in just a, a couple of weeks. But he's calling us to remain with him. Jesus is the curriculum. Uh, to be with Jesus is different for each of us. Let me just throw that out there. Do you know that? It's different if you're really the verbal guy and he's constantly like exhorting you or, or confronting you. It's different if you have a background of brokenness. Can you imagine the difference? I want your personality in with the 12. And you're thinking about this, okay? And the kid brings the fish and the bread and the one person is interacting with Jesus. What should we do? And Jesus said, well, you feed him. Okay, so we're feeding them. Let's pretend you had no part in anything that day, except at the end, you're carrying three or four baskets of fish and bread, and you know you started with none. And you're carrying it back to Jesus. 
He doesn't say anything to you about it. You're just walking with these baskets of bread and fish. What are you thinking? See how that experience is different for you than it might have been for Thomas? See how that experience is different than you, definitely, than it was for Judas? Because following after Jesus and being with him is very personal. I love the fact that Jesus is going to confront my personality and say, listen, John, if you with your personality are going to follow me, here are the things you're going to have to nail down so that you don't get in the way and so that I can shine. And that conversation is going to be different with you. But all of us have that conversation because we're with him. And he's confronting us. And he's teaching us. And while we're with him with our Bibles open, here's another way we interact with Jesus. Is You know that Jesus, there are very few examples of Jesus having a one-on-one confrontation or conversation with anyone in the Bible. Almost none. So what does that mean? It means he's calling us to follow him together. He's calling us to follow him with people that annoy us. And the people who start out annoying us, okay, really? You want to sit on Jesus' right hand, and you're telling everybody that you're asking to sit on Jesus' right hand. What am I? Where am I going to sit? Four tables over? And so there's annoyance. In the, in the reality of the discipleship, you know, the, the connections with one another. And they, they, they work through that. Peter, James, and John are always named first. In this passage, they're named first. They're the inner circle. What about the other nine? Of course, one of the nine are way outside the box, Judas, but the other eight are looking around going, hey, what am I? But you know what? There's not an example of them jealous about that. They dealt with it. There are people in this church, some people are going to follow Christ more closely. Uh, Here's a few things I wrote down. Uh, Some people are, uh, when it comes to the giftedness, some people are more mature than I am, that's for sure. Some people are more gifted than I am. Some people are more verbal than I am. That is hard to believe. Some people are closer to him than I am. And he calls us to follow him with others. And as we follow him with others, we don't just like deal with it. We don't just like, oh man, roll our eyes at one another. I'm going to have to follow with him or her. No, we love Jesus so much and we begin to see that that person's gift is being, that that person is being transformed into the image of Jesus too. And as we follow for two years and three years and four years and six years and 20 years together, we see how that person is totally changed because of the work of Jesus because Jesus has gotten up in that person's face and saying, you're immature. You need to mature. They say, you're too verbal. You, you jumped the gun. In, uh, later on, we're going to see this, uh, that the disciples are called various names. And James and John were the, thun, the sons of thunder. And uh, John has uh, really freaked out because there was someone coming and casting out demons, and he wasn't casting it out in, in the name of Jesus. And Jesus got up into John's face and said, look, just let it go. If he's casting out in my name, they'll be cast out. If he's not, they won't. Don't worry about it. Just let it go. And so here we have John, the disciple Jesus loved, being confronted by Jesus, and Jesus telling him, don't worry about it. Grow up. 
And that's what happens in the church over a long period of time is all of us grow up. And we can all think of five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago when we were less mature and we drove each other crazy a little bit more. And you know what? Rather than focusing on the thing that irritates or annoys in in the relationship of the church, we focus on Jesus. And then we focus on, look, how much that person has changed more and more in the image of Jesus all these years. Because Jesus is at work changing them and making them his own. And that is a beautiful thing in the life of the church. To watch your life change because you're with Jesus. Because you spend time with him. In calling the twelve, he demonstrates his desire for them. We've already talked about that. Note the order, would you with me? That uh, in remaining with Jesus here in in verse uh, 14... He appointed 12 to whom he named apostles. Can I just say that uh, disciple means learner? So disciples who are learning become apostles who are sent. And so that is the next thing, that not only do we remain with Jesus, but we are going to be sent by Jesus. We're going to be scattered as we preach the word to the people uh, that we come into contact with. He appointed 12 who are learners, whom he also named apostles, who he sent out so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. But did you see the order? You you can't just go out to preach. You can't just cast out the demons. He calls them to be with him first. Come be with me first. Before we cast out, we are with him. Before we preach, we are with him. Before we are with him, he calls us. And before he calls us, glory. He wants us. Did you get that order? Before we preach, he calls us. And before he calls us, he wants us. He wants us to come to him and be with him and spend time with him. Listen, don't say there's some reason why you can't hear that call. Don't say there's something in your past that, that uh, short circuits the call of God in your life. Don't tell me all the reasons why. Look at these disciples have all the reasons not to follow after. They have all the reasons not to be with. They have all the reasons not to believe. They have all the reasons to doubt. They have all the reasons to twist every word he says. And he gets up in their face and says, I want you. I want you. So there's nothing in your past that makes Jesus not want to say to you, I want you. There's no sin that you've done. There's no weird, twisted way of thinking. There's no unreal uh, childhood experience. The way you were raised, none of that precludes Jesus looking you in your eyes and saying, I want you. Come and follow me. He wants us to follow with others, as we've talked about. And, and so we, we move on. We talk about this, okay, the good news that he has, he has given us to preach. He wants us to preach the good news, that is, to scatter. Those who learn of Jesus are sent by Jesus. And keep in mind that while there is a formal time where we're getting to know who Jesus is before we go out, that that formal time is sort of different, and we can start immediately preaching of Jesus after we've been with him. Remember last week and the week prior, we saw... Uh, Andrew immediately say, okay, I'm going to go to Peter. We found Jesus. We, we found the Messiah. And he immediately taught Peter 
everything he knew about Jesus. Isn't that what preaching is? You're not waiting to some day till you're somehow mature enough. You're not waiting for someone else to do this. You're realizing that if Jesus has looked into your eyes and said, come follow me, that immediately you start teaching others everything you know about Jesus. That's going to grow as you follow him. You, you, it's going to grow as he orchestrates the relationship. You can hear this message and say, well, now I'm going to, there's a person on the south of me in the house. I'm going to start teaching them of Jesus today. Hi. I wanted to teach you of Jesus today. It doesn't work like that necessarily. Now, it could work like that. But it, it works as God brings people into your path, your relational path, and you faithfully scatter. Some of us are on county boards, and some of us are in jobs around the county, and you have lunch hours and after work and before work. Some of us are baseball coaches or soccer coaches, and that's our thing right now. Some of us are in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. Some of us work jobs that take us out of the region and in in all sorts of different areas. Some of us are sick And you cannot deny that God has brought into your life people you never met and didn't really want to meet right now for you to have an opportunity to preach the gospel. So you've gathered with him, and now in all of our relationships, we're scattered to preach the good news. This is Jesus' tactic, and he wants us to scatter, to preach, to bring those people back, to build them up so that they can spend time with Jesus, so that they can go out and preach. And rather than saying to the large crowds that we come in contact with, look how amazing Jesus is and all the tricks he can do, we say one relationship at a time, I have learned deeply of Jesus. He has changed everything about me. And I want to faithfully tell you that you can have your life changed as your sins are forgiven by the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Come see who he is. God's called you to that, and he's called me to that. We stand confidently in our... um, We stand confidently as well, okay? So on the job training, he he teaches them here in in verse 18, excuse me, verse... um, 17, let's go back up. Okay, so verse 14 and 15, 15. And uh, we have authority to cast out demons. And so Jesus has given him the authority. Remember in Matthew 28, he's given us authority. We stand in his authority. In other words, we don't have power in ourselves to do this stuff, but because Jesus is offering us his authority, we have a responsibility to stand. Keep in mind that unclean spirits, their main job is not to spook people and scare people. Their main job is to convince them that their counterfeit power rivals Jesus. It's not true. So our primary job when we come in, into contact with unclean spirits is not to, to somehow forcefully, you know, Jesus has already defeated them. They're defeated. They're done. They know that their days are numbered in this world. We are to stand confidently in the authority of Jesus when we have conflict with unclean spirits, and in the authority Jesus has given, remind them of the truth that the the Spirit of God is more powerful than them, and that their counterfeit power is an embarrassment and cannot deliver anyone and cannot bring anyone to the place where they uh, have uh, uh, a life that they want. It is not life-giving. It is life-taking. When we have power 
encounters. We are not there to somehow overcome something with our own power. We are there to stand in the authority. Jesus has already won and remind them, you have lost. Jesus has won. Nothing you do can put me in a position where I will doubt that Jesus' authority is the only authority and that the authority that I see given by you today is counterfeit and weak and eternally destroyed. That's what a power encounter is really all about with unclean spirits. And Jesus calls them to stand confidently in that moment. Well, finally, we, we, we see that the disciples are sent to make other disciples. And, and Jesus gives them this responsibility. He, he names them and gives them some incredible, uh, some incredible... He changes their names to reflect the kind of person they are in his kingdom. So we've got Peter, uh, or Simon. And Simon, we're going to change your name to Petros. Mark, you probably know, he's this... He's this John Mark is this person of action. He doesn't talk much about theology. He doesn't, he doesn't want to know uh, the academic side of things. He wants to see it done. He uses the word immediately like a hundred times in, in Mark. Immediately, right now, let's get this done. So in this, in this uh, book, he names Peter, Petros, like 19, 20 times. And he just keeps saying, that's the kind of person Peter is in the disciples. Sons of thunder, they're named. Later on, we see Simon the Cananean. Well, really, um, the, can- the word Cananean talks about him being zealous. So he's Simon the zealous. He is the intense one. He is the focused one. He is the one who is always on. He was always about making Jesus known, right? Let me ask you this question. If you were renamed this week, and you and your time with the Lord, and your time with your life group, and your time with your... By the way, the life group thing tonight is going to be awesome. Really encourage you to come and just enjoy the time together. If you've not been in a life group before, tonight is especially for you because it's going to be a time of, of you asking the question, do I want to be in a life group in years to come or, or weeks to come? It's a great opportunity. Uh, and it's possible tonight, we're, we're really looking to get a life group meeting on a Friday night. We've been working on that for a long time. So it's possible tonight we'll, we'll pull one more life group together for the rest of the school year. But I digress. Um, What I really want to say is if this week the Lord were to reveal to you either in your personal devotional life or while you're with your life group the name that he would give you, what would he change your name to? Would you be the zealous? Would would you be a son of thunder? Would you be the little rock, Petros? Now here's, here's something. None of those names are negative. So you're not allowed to say, oh, my name is Sally the Timid. Right? I, I am Johnny the Unfaithful. All right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus knowing who you are, seeing how he's put you together, knowing that he's inviting you right into his space to make time with you, to spend time with you. Who would he say you are? What name would he give you? Man, would I love it if you spent some time in your devotions this week and just consider. I'm not saying that's going to be your name for the rest of your life. We're not going to start calling you the macho or whatever name you come up with. That's probably not going to be your discipleship name, I'm guessing. We're not going to start calling you that name. It's not going to get weird like that. But it can help you see how God has put you together. And as you spend time with Jesus, what he might be, 
what he might be manufacturing, what he might be bringing out in you. Personality strengths that he might want to use to announce his kingdom to your neighbors and to your, the people you work with. Guys, he sent these disciples out to make more disciples, to go out and teach them and bring them back. And now this is the, this is the inception, this is the beginnings of the church. You have all these different arguments about when it all started. And, and honestly, all I can tell you is, look, he named 12 guys here. That is an obvious connection with the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. He's definitely started the work of the church. These 12 guys, are the, the, they go out two by two by two by two. There's six groups of two here that he's going to send out to start ministering to the people around him. And by the way, if you're going out, it's wonderful to have a partner going out and praying with you, checking in on you, supporting you, encouraging you, also doing work that you've got to support. So as, as we go out... It's really important that, uh, that we see that this is the beginning of the church. He's doing a work. This is the strategy he wants the church to work. Not huge crowds wowed by miracles in our presence. That can happen sometimes. But he usually walks away from that. He's already proven who he is. He walks away from that and takes just small groups and meets with them individually and spends time with them day after day after day after day. So now I want you to go out, teach the people in your world who I am. So you're gathered to learn of me, you're scattered to preach of me, and you stand in the authority. And we just keep doing that day after day. This life is going to be short. We're going to come to the end of it, and our days will be done. And only us staying with Jesus this is the only means by which you'll, you'll measure your life one day. Are you faithful to him? And so he calls you to himself, sends you out, calls you to himself, and then says, listen, as I send you out, I want you to call others to, to me. This is the method. We're going to build the church. All of us going out, all of us preaching, all of us coming together. All of us. And it's this breathing that takes place in the church. And it's the only method he's given us to build his church in the world. I hope you're all about that. Let's stand together as we are dismissed. Father, I pray for the one today who has a hard time hearing that you have good intentions for the rest of their life. I pray that you would help us with that, because you do. You are not bound by a past. You are looking to heal right now by spending time with us so that we're ready to go out and make disciples. So, Lord, we embrace your only plan for discipleship, the one that you showed us in Jesus. We embrace it. I pray that that person in here that has no idea where to start, that you would help them start by spending time with you this week, alone and in groups, and that we would be faithful to provide friendships in this place, and that we would, we would keep our, our fellowship, our time in the boat focused on ministry and focused on the person of Jesus as we love each other in the boat and as we minister to the crowds from the boat. Help us, we pray. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.